Okay. I know a lot of people over here. I know some of you over here, but um, I haven't been able to be, be in here uh, most of the summer. So if you don't know me, my name is Ryan Vincent, and I am one of the adult pastors here. And uh, I, love, I love merging our classes like this each summer for the last four or five years. The college ministry and my Sunday school class have merged for the summer. And then uh, this year, we decided to bring you guys in, and I think it's been pretty cool, pretty fun. Um, but when you do that, you start to accumulate a lot of teachers and a lot of people that need hours for internships or this, that, or the other. And before long, I realized that I don't get to teach all summer, and then uh, I will get to teach the last lesson here today. I'm excited to do that. Before we get started, a few housekeeping things. The uh, Moore brothers should have distributed some handouts. Trace is coming around with pens if you need them. This is our last Sunday um, in this format. So I asked Justin and Morgan what, the, what to let you guys know about, because Justin's preaching today. He said, we don't know what the plan is for high school Sunday school going forward. We're going to sort that out in the next couple of days. Stay tuned. I don't know how you guys communicate, but listen up. They'll tell you. Um, as far as my class is concerned, next week being family camp, we're just going to take a break, and then the following week we will resume. I'm, I'm assuming in this room right here, um, room 34, but stay tuned. I'll be in touch about that. But no Sunday school next week for the adult side of things. Um, as we get going, we're going to be in Philippians 4, as you can tell from your handout. Um, this is my only slide today. And uh, this is not intended to be a shot at you at all. Um, I just think this is a really interesting quote. So this is from, I don't know if any of you guys are Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe fans. That's, that's uh, or Chronicles of Narnia fans. Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe. Everyone knows that story, right? Well, this is the story. This is the magician's nephew. This is the story right before the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So you're going to get a couple of... Um, glimpses into my personality here as both a dad and as a theological nerd. I really like this story because, as you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is all about Aslan, who represents Jesus, and then you have humanity on this adventure against evil and the white witch and all that stuff. And the, the Christian themes in there are undeniable. But again, this is the story just before that. And so if you don't know what The Magician's Nephew is about, it is basically C.S. Lewis telling the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, of the fall of man, and, uh, and of evil into the world, and really of the creation of Narnia in the first place. And, uh, and this, this quote is interesting because you have, you have a, a number of characters. You have kind of the development of the white witch and how she represents Satan at its core. Um, and then you have the introduction of Aslan, and, and you have these two children, uh, Diggory and Polly. And they both represent kind of different types of Christians, but they're, they're clearly Christians in the story. And these children are adventuring into this, these, these worlds, these other worlds. And they, in, in the ninth chapter of, of this particular book, you, you have this image of Aslan singing things into existence. It sounds a lot like Genesis 1 and 2, where God speaks stars, speaks planets, speaks galaxies into existence. Aslan is doing the same thing. And you have this, this figure, uh, creepy Uncle Andrew, who represents the skeptic, the unbelieving uh, evil one. And he, he cannot stand, he cannot even understand what he's seeing when he sees Aslan 
singing things into existence, so much so that he refuses to believe that this is anything miraculous, that he's actually singing anything at all. Instead, he believes this is just a lion roaring. And this is the story, this is the explanation that we get here. It says, now the trouble with trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. And again, this is not about you guys. This is more about um, what does it look like to trust someone who knows better? What does it look like to, to stare in the face of a godlike figure and trust that their way of living is better than yours? That their conception of how things are, of how, say, universes come to exist, are better than your ability to reason through that. Because what the, what the story teaches is that Uncle Andrew thought he was being brilliant as he looks down on this lion, singing things into existence as foolishness, when in the end he was just becoming, to use a nice C.S. Lewis word, stupider. In Philippians 4 offers us a, a godly way of living that may at times feel foreign, may at times feel forced. And we may think that we know better, but as we navigate Paul's instructions, his final instructions to the church in Philippi, um, we'll, I think we'll see that this really does result in peace. It really does result in comfort. And it really does result in a right relationship with God. And this is Paul's, again, sign-off to the church in Philippi. Now, a couple of things about your Bibles. Um, I, I pray that as you've, you've had the opportunity for now nine different teachers to come up here and, and walk through Philippians, that not only have you learned some things, like our, our goal as teachers, it really is to impart some content. We really do want you to learn something. But oftentimes, our goal is maybe even more so to teach you how to learn, to exemplify the learning process, to, to enable Brady to go home and do this better by himself or with his family. And so not only do you get to learn the Bible at church, I hope that you are paying attention to how to deal with the Bible at church such that you're able to go home and do some of it yourself. So a few things about the Bibles that you guys take home and... Uh, Put on your nightstand or more likely leave rattling around in the floorboards of our cars. Um, a few things about these. These have wonderful resources in them. They're beautiful. Um, they have verse numbers. They have chapter numbers. You see in Philippians chapter 4, there are even section headings over the paragraphs. But um, we need to be careful that we don't place too much stock in them. After all, I'm sure you thought it was strange that last week... Um, well, most of you weren't here last week, so I hope you enjoyed the mountain. But those of you that were probably found it strange that Max's section went all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. Instead of just stopping clean at the end of chapter 3. Well, a, a couple of reasons. The, 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 the verse numbers are very recent. Like, let, Paul did not write verse 1. Blah, 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 blah. He wrote a letter. And he wrote it to the church in Philippi. And it was just a, a nice little letter. And then in the 1500s, we thought that it would be important to put verse numbers in there. Because after all, it was only in the 1200s that a priest in England added the chapter divisions. So that you and I could, uh, as the world started to globalize at some level, whatever you could do in the, in the 13th century, 
As the world starts to globalize and we're talking with one another and scholars are writing back and forth and debating certain things, they needed to be able to settle on which words in the Bible they're actually talking about. So it's like, hey, go to to Mark 12 and we're going to talk about that. And then we needed to get more precise, so we added the, the verse numbers. But those things are not divinely inspired. They weren't put in there by any of the authors. And so sometimes these are really helpful because they tell us when to stop reading. Like, I'm going to read through, and um, today I'm going to do a, a little bit in Philippians. I'm going to do all of Philippians 1, and then as soon as Philippians 2 starts, I'm going to stop. Because if I go into 2, I've got to finish it. And then I've got to get all the way to the beginning of 3. But 3 is pretty interesting, and I'm going to be tempted to look there. And so now, because I'm a little OCD, I've got to finish 3. I've come this far, I've got to finish 4. So you have these arbitrary little markers that really are somewhat helpful, but they can be misleading, as is the case in Philippians 4, verse 1. That's really part of the previous section. More so than that, all of the little section headings above these paragraphs are, if you will forgive my cynicism, <laughs> almost useless. They don't help at all. They, they, again, they tell us where to stop reading, and they may even give something of a summary of the contents below, but they, they disjoint Paul's overall argument because That's not what he intends for you to to do. He doesn't intend for you to take this in little chunks. It's to be absorbed as one. So in chapter 4, you see it says practical counsel over verse 2. And then over verse 10, it says appreciation of support, where Paul talks about, hey, you guys were great. You gave me money when I needed it, and that's awesome. But as we break this down, you'll see that's really not what Paul is doing. He's not giving an appreciation for support. He's doing something much deeper and more rich than that. And then finally, final greetings over chapter two, or verse 21. Not super helpful. We get that. But it also kind of takes away the connection to the stuff previous. So here's what I want us to do as we do our best to not try to make ourselves stupider. <laughs> I want us to, to break this down and rewrite our own section headings. In this sense, this is a way, I hope that we can kind of walk through as an exercise how to study your Bible without a whole bunch of commentaries, without a whole bunch of books, without even necessarily a study Bible, with just the text itself. It is, it is something that you can know. It is something that you can understand. It is something that you can gain rich wisdom from with nothing other than the, the book that you have in front of you. Uh, it just takes a little bit of careful thought. So, as I've made the case that these sections really shouldn't be separated as they are, I'm going to read the text to you um, in its entirety, in part because that's how the Bible was meant to be ingested. These are oral texts. Paul wrote this. This was an actual letter on parchment or maybe on some vellum. Um, but he, he wrote this so that the leaders of the church in Philippi would read it to the church. And so he writes it with the ear in mind, not with the eyes. So that being the case, I'm going to read it straight through. And I'm going to ask you to kind of close your eyes and just hear it. Uh, if, if, you, if you feel like you can track better by following along as I read, sure, go ahead. But maybe consider just hearing the text read over you. And, uh, and as I read it, think through some questions or some interesting phrases and just kind of make a little mental note. So beginning in verse 2. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. 
along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by, by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have in abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And that's how the letter concludes. It's a little different just hearing it. And this is where, like, when I hear a good reader... I almost want to pay them to come like read the Bible to me like by my bedside. It would be weird to ask Randy to do that, but she is one of the best public readers. It's, it's creepy. Um, I love it. Um, but to, to hear the Bible. So let me just encourage you guys. Some of you may have heard of this thing called the Dwell app. It's pretty cool. It's, it's, I don't know what the price is, but it costs money. But it's got all these readers that read the Bible to you, and you can put a music bed underneath it. And they have readers from different countries with different dialects or accents, really. And, and it's, it's a great way. But you, if you have the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, that does the same thing. So um, if you want to really take in the Word of God, like employ as many senses as you can. Listen to it and read it at the same time. Follow along. Um, Follow with your finger in the text. That's three senses you've now, you've now engaged. I don't know if you guys ever noticed those people that read by running their finger along the page. Sometimes, Scott Irwin does this. Um, I love it. Like, sometimes it's like, is he having trouble? Like, are his eyes bad? No, it's actually a sign of a really fast reader because if you, it, it maintains your focus. And so, I don't know, I'm sure, 
I may be alone as the one who's really looked into speed reading techniques, but they always say, like, run your finger along the page and you will go fast. But it also, I like it because it adds, like, one more sense. If I could get the Bible to smell nice, maybe find an old Bible that smells weird. And, and now, you, now you're employing all these senses. And really, you're engaging your memory in new and fresh ways. So anyone, by the way, just anyone who says they can't memorize the Bible is, uh, is a liar. Because all of you are great at memorizing songs. And so it's just repetition and put it to music and all of a sudden you know stuff. So here's what we're going to do. Now that you've heard it. Um, now that we've talked about what, what we're trying to do here in chapter 4, you notice that I gave you kind of a weird-looking page with a, bunch, a big margin on the right. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to break this down together. So how many paragraphs? One, two, three, four, five paragraphs. So I'm going to number off your tables. You're going to be a, a one something between one and five. And then together at your table, I'm going to give you a little bit of assignment. But in the meantime, let me just give you numbers. Remember your numbers. So one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five in the back. One, two, three, four. There's six. Okay, there's five. What are you? Four. Okay. So remember your number. And you are that number paragraph. So here's what I want us to do. It, it won't take us long. I want you as a table to... to determine a few things about your paragraph. First of all, key words. If you see a word that's repeated, that's a key word. Not, not like prepositions and articles, but like, I'll give you a hint. In the first one, rejoice is said, like he even doubles down on it. So there's a key word and one that we ought to pay attention to. And one that probably offers a clue as to the meaning of the paragraph. So key words. And then I also want you to note any questions that you have. What does he mean by this? Um, I'm not sure what he's actually referring to, or this seems to conflict with something else, or I didn't know, whatever. Yeah, come up with some questions. And then, finally, give me the gist of the paragraph. My first pass-through, whenever I'm getting ready to teach something, I have a... I have a, a, a process that has, you know, well-worn ruts that I enjoy. But the first step is always to just read, 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 read the passage over and over again. And then is to come back and can I write each paragraph in a single sentence? Not exhaustively, I'm going to lose something, but can I get the gist of the paragraph? Um, and so in that sense, whenever we're talking about the biblical text, the paragraphs are way more helpful than any chapter divisions or, uh, or verse um, indicators. So take five-ish minutes, maybe have somebody at your table read the passage out loud again, um, and, and settle on some keywords, ask any questions, or jot down some questions, and see if you can settle in on the gist. It doesn't even have to be a complete sentence, okay? Ready, set, go.
bring it back. Now before we kind of give our reports, uh, um, maybe each table nominate a spokes, spokesperson, gender inclusive here, spokesperson. Um, let me just highlight one of the reasons that I like doing this in classrooms. I feel the, and I have like a lot of training in terms of how to study and interpret the Bible, and I feel the least confident about my Bible study when I do it by myself. I'm, again, equipped to do so, but I don't like to. I prefer to do it in dialogue with others. Part of that is I am an extreme extrovert, and I like to make other people like the things I like. So there you go. But part of it is I think it's, it provides incredible value because when you read a text together, they, you, you get a, a plurality of insights into the text. Because not only does, like, are these passages inspired of the Word of God, they are, they, are, they are uniquely authoritative and they are true outside of what you and I think about them. The Holy Spirit really does illumine the text for us. It's kind of a strange word, but the Holy Spirit, when, the, when the, a, a religious text or a, an inspired divine passage is read by people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I believe the Spirit speaks to us through the Scriptures. And so I need to sit down next to a Mike Henson and hear how he's engaging with it. Because he's going to offer a, a, a perspective. That, not that we come at it with different meanings and it can just mean anything we want. But he's going to see a nuance in the text that I couldn't. And when we read it together, I think that we can actually come to some better, richer conclusions. Um, and then also reading it together provides built-in accountability in terms of whatever demands the text places on our lives. So, all that to say, this is a good way to do it should you, uh, should you find it uh, a possibility to spend time studying the Bible with others in small settings. But I think we have, uh, what are my table ones? Your table one? Table one? Table one? Okay. Um, we'll, start, we'll start over here. What are some key words or ideas or themes that, that stuck out from verses 2 through 7? Actually, hold on. Let me make sure that we, we got this verse or th these passages in our heads. So again, it says, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Sintiki to agree in the Lord. Those are both female names. I should just make that clear. Those aren't, those aren't common names, but they're both female names. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women. Okay, there we get the female side. Who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So some main ideas, key words, key ideas. Yep. <laughs> Were there any questions that came up? We questioned the Lord is near, but how does that mean? Ah, how does it mean that the Lord is near? That's good. Any other questions? Well, we're not just going to ask the questions. We're going to try to answer them. But. 
Any other ones? I'm going to collect them all and then maybe go after them. Okay. Table of two on passage one. Any additional key ideas? Urge. Ah, so Paul is, is there's, a, there's a, I guess you could say, and it's hard to tell if it's a beg or a command. Although with Paul, sometimes he's not so interested in you knowing the difference between that. Um, okay, any questions that came up? That is a great insight. We don't know the background. Notice that Paul doesn't say what these women are arguing over. It's almost as if, one, you can assume that, and we get this in a bunch of Paul's letters, he's writing to people who are familiar with what's going on and therefore he doesn't need to, to, to rehash. But it, you may also have a, a glimpse into Paul's understanding of the peace of God and of unity in the church. That he's not really interested in what the problem is. That's at least a, a very viable option. Okay. Other table number one. Any additional key ideas? No. Nope. Any questions? Nope. Super helpful, Max. Um, <laughs> well, then I'll ask you guys, what's your gist? How, like, how do you sum this, this paragraph up? Constant joy. Rejoice always. And then I think as, as you're pointing out, if you're able to, to muster that, if you're able to rejoice always, then uh, ladies, whatever you're arguing about is not, a, is not an issue here. We're not going to break you. We're not going to hurt the church over this because we have an eternal joy. Um, I, I think that's where we even get a little bit of the definition of what it is. That, what is the peace of God? That surpasses all understanding. You know, verse um, seven, is it seven? That's, a, that's one of those famous, I call them coffee cup verses. It's like Ruth's Christian bookstore is going to make money by putting this on a coffee cup. And um, this is one of those verses. And what does it mean to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? And it's, it, it's probably connected to this constant joy, this ever-present rejoicing. And he doesn't really go into what that might mean, but he tells us how to do it. So through prayer and through petition with thanksgiving. So um, prayer, asking God what you need, but being thankful for what you already have. Those are big themes in Philippians, by the way. Present your requests to God. And uh, in this peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And you have this, this instruction to do that as a way of not worrying. How interesting. This is something that I've wrestled with a lot over the last couple of years is how to talk about worry or can I use the term that we like to use more often, anxiety in the church. And I've come to a couple of conclusions, I'm still kind of figuring this out. Um, one, there is like clinical anxiety that is a result of chemical imbalance. I think that's, that's beyond question. But I think it's overdiagnosed as that a lot. Um, I've, I, I, I'm, I think that primarily from personal experience, I've never been a worrying person. 
I've never been a person that has struggled with anxiety or anxious thoughts um, until this year, actually. This year, I have had some very frustrating health issues that um, have kind of knocked me down a few pegs, and I've had to like deal with some new thoughts. And doing and, and to, to all of a sudden um, go into age 36 with new health problems, and you have young kids in the house, um, just as a father, that started to freak me out. Because I, I felt bulletproof until that point. And all of a sudden, I have new reasons for anxiety problem. And I don't think I've ever truly experienced a panic attack or something called like an anxiety attack. And I, and I don't think that I have like a, 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 a real, um, an anxiety problem that needs ongoing treatment. But I did notice that there were times where I would kind of start to freak out. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but I think I solved it. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't freak out. It doesn't mean that I don't get worried. It doesn't mean that I don't get anxious. It just means I figured out how, in my case, over the situations I'm dealing with, how to not stay there. I realized that my anxiety was at its root a direct result of a lack of prayerfulness. That was my problem. Is I started to think that I had to handle everything, that I had to figure everything out, that me being you know, able to live long and take care of my kids is up to me. And I, and I really stopped like, taking those kind of things to the Lord. And I kid you not, as I'm driving my car and I start to freak out about something, I started doing what's called the Jesus Prayer. I talked about this at our life group last week. The Jesus Prayer is a very short prayer. It's from Eastern Orthodox Christianity. It's very, very old. Um, don't hold that against it. Uh, Philippians is old too. Old things are good. And uh, the Jesus prayer is simply this. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh no, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the, the way that you pray that is you just repeat it to yourself over and over. And over. You just pray it. You meditate on it. You pray it. Meditate on it. Not in a babbling way. Not in a formulaic way. Like if I say this a hundred times, that will fix everything. But in a way where if I pray this enough, I will start to believe it. Now think of that short, very, very, very short prayer. How much um, rich encouragement is, is baked into it. Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, that means he is in charge of all things and all things are under his care and provision. Jesus, that is literally the word for God saves. Christ, that is the word, that's the Greek word for Messiah. That means he has come to, to fulfill, achieve and fulfill God's plan of redemption. So I have the one who's in charge of everything and the one who saves people and loves them and the one who has come as God's chosen messenger. Son of God, he is the chosen one. Have mercy on me. That's a beautiful line because that tells me that his first, his first step towards me is one of mercy and graciousness and compassion. A sinner, as someone who is not really worthy of such love and compassion. And I just pray that over and over. And it's amazing how, again, in my case, my anxiety just kind of melts away. I also feel the same thing about the Lord's Prayer. When I talk about a father who's in heaven, whose name is holy. We talked about this last week in the church while you guys were at Youth Quick again. Um, but I... I've really learned how to live, verse 6, this last year. To not worry, 
But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present my request to God. And I'm still sick. I'm not going to die. Don't panic. But I'm, I still don't feel good. I still, I, I still have medical things that we're working through. But I'm not worried about it anymore. Anxiety is no longer one of my symptoms. And it's because I think I recovered a prayer life that I let slip away. Probably in a year where the best thing that we all figured out how to do was distract ourselves. I let my prayer life slip. And I've had to work to get it back. And now I'm just not struggling with certain worries. Feels like I've learned how to rejoice always again. And I am again experiencing the peace of God. Um, so I, I say this. I tell that long-winded story. And I promise we'll move faster. As a, as a personal example of I started to make myself stupider. Because I started to believe in myself more than I believed in the power of God. And boy, was I wrong. And I had to repent. And I get to experience the joy of um, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Even my long-winded explanation really can't explain it. But let's move on. So the second paragraph, so those, that's verses 8 through 8 and 9, right? So tables 2. Okay, we'll start over on this side this time. Uh, key ideas, key words. section headings in your Bible are virtually useless because mine says practical counsel. How helpful can that possibly be? But if you were to tell me that this is a, a, a long explanation of what it's like to find and have the peace of God, that seems to me a lot more clear. Uh, where's another table too? Right here. Anything to add in terms of key ideas? Any questions? No. Straightforward. There's a bit of a question of what would come Yeah, this results in the peace of God. Um, you could have a sermon on every single virtue he lists there. Um, truth, honor, justice, purity, um, lovely or beauty would probably be a better way of translating that. Something that is commendable or maybe good or admirable would be a better way of maybe saying that. Without laboring long on those individual terms, let me just say this. Um, there is something spectacular about 
dwelling on the things of God. This is why the saints throughout the history, and I'm not talking like uh, saints in the Roman Catholic Church, I'm talking about Christians throughout the history of the church have prayed the Psalms. Because I don't know if any of you guys have like, uh, you know, written out your prayers. They're probably beautiful. I'm sure they are. Um, they're a reflection of you and your ongoing walk with God. That's great. The Psalms are by definition better. <laughs> and they are beautiful. And they're robust. And it doesn't mean that we only pray the Psalms. But whenever you find, like this is why praying, you find a Pauline prayer, pray that for somebody. I promise he's going to pray for things that you wouldn't have thought to pray for. And, and what it does is these are opportunities for us to dwell on what is good, what is honorable, what is just. And to, to saturate ourselves with the things of God makes us more godly over time. I, brought the, I actually brought the magician's nephew. This is the, this is the little paperback set I read to my kids because they are forces of destruction, so I don't let them near good books. Um, I'm going to read to you the long, like the, the, the few sentences around this particular um, line on the screen so you can hear someone who stopped dwelling, uh, or an example of someone who stopped dwelling on these, these godly virtues and uh, therefore could not have peace. So this is Uncle Andrew uh, again, he is, a, he is a wicked man. He's a magician. Oh, he's not a very good one. Um, and he is watching Aslan sing. And things are being created. And, and listen to how he thinks through this. So Uncle Andrew says, Of course, it, the lion, can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. He's thinking back to, to when he saw it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else even if he'd wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And I worry that sometimes you and I will spend so much time in the world with the things of the world that after a while, the things of God will just sound like a snarl to us. We've no longer like, tuned our ears to hear what is good. Because we've need countless reasons. We've, we've spent too much time trying to be a witness to our friends, whatever that means. Um, we've spent too much time trying to understand the world so that we may reach the world. And that, I get that. But you have to find your limit. And there is only so much of the world that you and I were made to, to take. So I, I tell people all the time. When they tell me that their, their spiritual life is dry, I ask them how, they've been, how their prayer life has been. It's usually non-existent, more or less. Or ask them what they've been spending their time doing. And even a, a, a good Christian that's going like, to make sure that they touch the Bible on the way out the door every morning is not really pouring themselves into the words of God. And my suggestion is always the same. Pray the Psalms and read the Gospels. And pour those things into your brains and into your soul. 
And then you will begin to love what is true, what is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. And you'll, in a sense, retrain your ear to hear the lion's song instead of just this weird roar you don't quite understand and you look down your nose at. Um, Where's the other table two? Right here? Can you guys give me the gist? Like, well, like summarize it for me. Verses eight and nine. I like that. The God of peace will be with you if you dwell on the right things. Um, it is tempting for us to consider God only a God of grace and not one of demand. But he does demand. He says to dwell on these things. And then the kingdom is unlocked for you. You have the God of peace on your side. So be careful that we do not take God's grace for granted, his peace for granted. We do not um, enamor ourselves too much with the things of the world. And I, and I will allow Justin and Morgan to elaborate on what this might be in your case. But there is something of a formula here. And I don't know if I need to apologize for Paul. He says, dwell on these things. And if you do, you will have peace with God. You will know the God of peace. Probably a better way of putting it. He will be with you. Okay, our third paragraph. This is Paul talking about his, his past experience with him. So he says, in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little and how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. So in the verses 10 through 15, table three, mega table here. Um, mega table, what are some big ideas here? Was that last thing? With the Lord's help. So we're now connecting. We have rejoicing is coming back. But I would say, and if you if you'll if you'll permit me a little bit of a stretch, can I can I equate contentment to peace at some level? You're cool with that? Okay, cool. Was that what you guys came up with at your table? I like that. So, stringing these paragraphs together. Um, any questions? Any questions from the back table? Okay. 
That's a great question. So his question is, in the final verse, so he says in his, you know, the coffee cup verse of all coffee cup verses, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's verse 13. In 14, he says, still, you guys help me. And the question is, is that God helping him or the church? I think it's the church. I think that's who he's talking about. And this is, again, what's fascinating is to ask, in what way, in this case, has God helped him? With the church. Um, our ability to suffer well, that's what Paul's talking about. Our ability to suffer well, I think, is directly connected to our ability to do it together. Um, I promise, I believe in Jesus so much. There's not a single person here that could do anything to me that's going to get me to recant. Um, Physical violence or threat of violence, and none of that's going to really work on me, I think. I I hope not. But I hope I never find out. Um, But you know what, what, like hurts me and even temporarily sets me back in my faith is when I see godly people fall. Like, when I see... Like, imagine if Jim Johnson suddenly decided to not be a Christian anymore. The ripple effect that might have here. Now, I would expect that at some level we all have the ability to withstand something like that. But it would be hard In part, a lot of my faith in the Lord is connected to the fact that I see him at work in others. In that sense, I don't really love the the description of a personal relationship with Jesus because I think that that's just a really anemic way of talking about life with Jesus. Because Jesus, in in the, the New Testament anyway, is always talked about in his connection to the church. Very seldom is he talked about in connection to individuals. It's to the church. In fact, Philippians is written to a church. Now, there's a couple of instructions here to two women that need to sort things out. There's some appreciation for a man named Epaphroditus and the work that he's done. But by and large, you could, this is where things get a little obscure in in the English. You could go and find anywhere where the word you, Y-O-U, is used in the text. And it would be more properly translated y'all or you's guys. It's always plural. And for us, like, that's very clear in the Greek. There's no, there's no question. For us, plural and, sing, and you know, um, second person singular and third person plural, or second person plural and third person plural are the same spelling. It's not helpful for us. So we read this and it's like, um, uh, where would I like to use this? So if, do what you have learned and received from me. So is he talking to me or is he talking about like this? So this is verse nine. Is he talking about like a collective? Do what y'all have learned and received from me. He's constantly doing it in this corporate sense. And so what I think we're seeing here in this particular passage is how has Paul, again, he uses this beautiful phrase, the secret to being content. You could write many books with that title and sell like crazy in the Christian bookstore. What is the secret to being content? And I don't know if anybody wants to hear to rejoice even when it stinks. And when you get kicked in the face, just be happy. And by the way, do it together. Philippians 4.13 has often been misunderstood as um, God is, is going to give us strength to do incredible and miraculous things. At some level, that's true. For uh, 
for a guy of, who's, who's five foot ten, that does not mean that I'm going to be able to dunk it anytime soon. Not even interested in dunking. That has no appeal to me. But I don't think this is anything like what that's like. This is clearly in the context of because God is strengthening me, I can suffer well. And I can suffer well because I have you guys with me. This is, this is Paul's favorite church in, in many cases. I, I think it's undeniable that this is probably his favorite church. Um, did I have another group? Three. What's a good summary of this, this section of the verses 10 through 15? Like the gist. Uh, so what we came up with was uh, sort of Paul is thanking God because despite the fact that God has shown that he can take care of Paul all on his own, Paul's been alone, he still sent this church to take care of him anyway. Yeah. So again, remember, Philippians, Paul's writing from a jail cell with an unusual amount of joy as he is there under the, the he says, Caesar's household. So let me think this is one of his Roman imprisonments. Um, and he knows what it's like to be alone. But he's also experienced God's mercy and the joy that the partnership with the Philippian church has, has offered him. This is one of those passages that when I read through it and I think about it, I think about how, how encouraging we could be as a body to our our missionaries. I mean, Matt Johnson's not in the prison cell. But he's, I don't know, half a mile from some cartel house. And he, but he is, he is kind of alone-ish. He's, he has a community down there. But I promise the, the, the collective saints here matter to him. The encouragement we offer him, more than just financially, matter to him. And this is one of those passages where it reminds me how much it is important to care for those who are doing kingdom work in a lonelier setting, and maybe even in cases a more hostile setting. And um, I, I want to be a Philippian-style church to those uh, kingdom workers that we have sent out. Verses 15 through uh, 20. This would be in group four. Group four. Giving, receiving, need, give, supply. Would you mind using a sentence? <laughs> well, you, you want us to summarize? Okay, yeah, give me a summary for the sake of time. I, we came up with the symbiotic relationship between Paul and the church. Okay. Sim? So he, he thanks them, you see, in verses 15 and 16. Um, and then in 17, he says, it's not even that I necessarily seek the gift you'll give me, but I seek the, the credit that will go to you for having given the gift. 
I don't know if you've ever really thought about the, the kind of a spirituality of generosity in that sense. Um, it's been interesting, uh, you know, as we, we're, we're with, I think we're two weeks away from officially opening the building that's been open for six months. Um, but the fundraising part of that whole thing was was fascinating exercise in, for me, just learning how to be grateful for other people's generosity. And, you know, as a ministry team, it was our job to go and ask people to give to this, which sounded like misery to me. There is nothing in me that likes going over to Kylie uh, Irwin's house and telling her that she needs to do X, Y, and Z with her money. And in part, I realized, because even in my own mind, I realized that our finances have become incredibly private and, uh, and that I don't want to ask someone to do something. And plus, I also realized that I, I think of giving as an exchange of goods and services. I, I give X amount. I want to receive X amount back. I want the return on investment to be nice and high. And um, I wonder if it's just more helpful for our hearts if generosity in the church is a little less efficient and a little more about just the fact of giving instead of getting the return on your investment that you think should be. It's like maybe, trust me, the elders will never sign off on this, but it's almost like we should have taken like a, a, a small percentage of the money and just burned it on the, on the, in the parking lot just as a ceremonial expression of how we trust God to give us even what we've burned and then more. Again, we have good elders. They would never accept my silly ideas. Um, but I want you to think about it. We don't have any real time to get into it now. But I want you to think about, even as you guys are at a stage in your life where to, to give is really a, probably a stretch. Many of you may not even have um, you know, part-time jobs or whatever. But I, I, I have found that giving in any sense, at any level, seems to have a spiritual return. And it's not formulaic. It just seems to be increasingly true as I get older that I see that where I have sacrificed and where I have seen others sacrifice, I just see God's kindness toward people. And it's, it's rarely in the form of like more money coming back their way. I just wonder if we, whatever it means to gain the profit that is increasing to your account, um, that comes in so many different forms, but I just know that I want it. And so I've learned to, to work hard to be more generous myself. I've learned to, um, to not feel so uncomfortable calling Christians to do Christian things like be generous. So something to think about as, as you move on. In conclusion, it just says in verses 21 through 22, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. You get, the, again, the, the call to unity here. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. So just note the words, every saint, the brothers who are with me send the greetings, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to something as scandalous as Caesar's household. Beautiful picture of unity. And I think um, that this might be a giant section demonstrating practical wisdom or practical counsel, as the CSB section heading says, on what it looks like to live as a unified church. I, uh, we, we, we most certainly didn't have time to get to it, but I've given you some questions there on page three to think through in each section. I've also given you other passages in the, the Bible that Paul used 
to, to further inform some of these themes. And uh, you're more than welcome to, to go into that as much as you like. But let me conclude our summer with a prayer that we would be like the Philippian church. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your providence to not only speak these words in the first place through your apostles and your prophets, but to preserve them for us for 2,000 years and beyond. Father, may we take seriously what you've called us to, to these virtues, which it's no coincidence that these virtues are beautifully expressed in your character. May we conform ourselves to these things so that we too can experience both the unity you expect the church to demonstrate and the peace that you offer to your people. Thank you for the time we've been able to spend together this summer. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.